Sale of bananas below the minimum size is almost always prohibited. Okay, just wrap your head around that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so today is an important episode because our whole like value prop on how we're going to help you guys is predicated on using behavioral nudges. So we're going to talk today about, and we're going we're to introduce what those are. We're going to talk about um, where they've been used, how they've been used, and how like small psychological uh, changes in your environment, in your context, and the way information is presented, and the way you are triggered, nudged, reinforced, can produce like extremely big changes in people's behavior, um, mostly for good, sometimes for ill. Um, but we'd like to bottle that and give it to you to use instead of have it be used against you. Yep, yep. And so in particular, you know, this week we're talking about um, at least part of a book called Inside the Nudge Unit, um, which is by... David Halpern. David Halpern, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, and it's basically about one of the first government institutions that w was set up to use these behavioral nudges or which is basically referring to a pretty broad set of disciplines but in particular like research from behavioral economics and psychology um, mm -hmm. and various branches of psychology mm -hmm. and this was basically a unit that was set up by the British government to figure out how they could improve outcomes um, for you know basically in like improve policy outcomes with these minor tweaks. So doing things like, you know, setting good defaults or changing the language on something to based on this um, social science research in order to be the most effective. And it was kind of one of the first times that this was used in th this type of research and these techniques were used in a structured way in government. Not the first time that government has used behavioral nudges. Um, and, you know, these are the same types of techniques that are used pretty widely in the tech industry and in consumer software um, to try to essentially, you know, drive engagement is, is what they call it. Um, or even in grocery stores. Yeah. You know, in, in every business, they use some subset of these. Yep. With tech being the most mature and sophisticated and ubiquitous, I would say. Actually, you know, grocery stores is a good counterpoint because they've been doing that a lot longer than the tech industry has been. Especially yeah. some of these larger grocery chains. Like, they spend a lot of money and time on how they lay out their stores yeah. in order to most effectively get people to spend more money. Yeah, and it's like this multi-sensory kind of experience as opposed to like... Uh, Tech, which is, you know, visual, auditory, kind of across those two parameters. But it's not like olfactory, like you're not smelling the technology. Right. You're not tasting it. There's no free samples. Yeah. You know, there's the temperature. You're not feeling the temperature of a, a location on your skin necessarily. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I think, um, like, a good definition for nudge here is basically... Uh, a way of encouraging or facilitating a behavior without mandating it. Um, and and to me, that raises one of the big questions of this book, which is, is it 
to what extent is it ethical to nudge others? And especially, is it ethical for the government to nudge people? Um, what is your initial take on that? So my initial take is, like, basically, if we... Well, okay, short version. Yes. I think it is ethical for the government to nudge people to do things. And the reason I think that, I mean, primarily is, like, we all accept that it's ethical for the government to tell people to do things, at least on uh, some level. No, even even people who are relatively, you know, pro-small government still accept that there should be road laws, right? We should drive on a certain side of the street and, you know, th- there should be some interaction there. People will generally accept that, like, there should be, you know, some medical uh, regulations on medicines. Like, you shouldn't be able to just, like, sell people snake oil anymore, right? It's good that they can't do that anymore. So at some level, every I think everyone, you know, falls on a spectrum of how comfortable they are with this. But government, at the end of the day, is a social contract where we are exchanging some level of our liberty for, like, safety and social cohesion. Right, but it's, I mean, I, I think it's, you know, like, it's, it's not really volitional, right? Like, it, I mean, the argument is like, hey, if you don't like it, you could leave. I mean, where? How? You know, like, where, Somalia, you know? Like, you can't really leave. So it's, it's kind of like, it's, I mean, uh, not everything the government does is bad. And there are things that logically the government should do, you know? Like, prevent people from murdering each other in the streets. Like, um, like some of the anarchists, like Michael Malice, he's like, okay, you know, why don't we just, Okay, the nations themselves, they're in a state of anarchy, right? They just coexist. They manage affairs among each other. Why can't we be like that? Well, the argument against that is nations are constantly at war and, you know, coercing one another and creating states of chaos. So I don't think anarchy necessarily makes sense, but I also think, like, it's a little bit of a, a, I don't know, It's, it's a little bit like the mafia coming to your door and being like, hey, you know, we keep the streets free of crime you know, if you don't like it, that's fine, but, you know, we'll just see what happens, you know? I mean, ultimately, like, you know, there's... I think it's not like everything they do is bad, but there's a morally questionable element to, like... Well, I think the reality is that if you want to live in a society sort of like the one we live in, right? If you want to be able to have technology right for example this microphone or these computers that we're looking at while we record you need intellectual podcasts. property law you need intellectual property law i mean even supply chains right even if you take the schematics now yeah. and then you dissolve all the governments like how are you going to create a global trade system that allows you to manufacture this laptop where there's aluminum from africa there's manufacturing in china there's design from the u.s there's semiconductors from taiwan there's rare earth elements from all over the world. I mean, I just don't think that can happen without some level of broader coordination, right? Well, a lot of that coordination, though, is done by companies. Sure, but ultimately, the companies, like, a company in the U.S. can do business with a go- company in China or in Taiwan because there are systems of global trade, right? Yeah, but, I mean, our intellectual property gets stolen all the time in China. So it's, it's not helping. I mean, I think if we dealt with, you know, ethical Chinese companies directly... We might actually be better off, um, but the Chinese government has like a systematic program of like aiding and abetting, you know, the theft of our intellectual property that like is 
No. Well, I, okay. Either way, ultimately, I think this is a complete side tangent. It's kind of irrelevant. Well, to the I, 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 I think <laughs> I, I think it it becomes relevant in the sense that I actually support government nudges as well. But the reason I support them is if the government is nudging you, you still have a choice. So as an example, you know, like the government goes through and like nudging is more effective, much more effective in a lot of cases. Uh, it's also better at preserving your your rights and your liberties. Yeah, yeah. I guess what, where I was going to go is that like if you can accept that the government on some level can tell you what to do, yeah. Then why would the it'd be unethical for the government to encourage you to do something, right? Like, that's a step back, not a step... Or like, you know, yeah. in terms of, like, the state projecting power, it's a step back yeah. from, the, from the state versus, like, the current status quo, right? Yeah. Like, the government today can say, you know, you have to do X, Y, Z, right? Yeah. Like, you, you know, for example, you have to pay taxes or you have to follow the speed limit or yeah. we're going to pull you over and ticket you, mm-hmm. right? So... A nudge is just like, you know, one, more effectively getting the outcomes that they're looking for. Yeah. Um, and two, again, like you're saying, you preserve choice. Yeah. So, you know, I don't really understand the concern with, like, governments nudging other than, like, ooh, spooky, it's like psychology. Yeah. But, like, I, yeah, I guess just, like, if we're okay with overt displays of state power right like over the citizenry then why wouldn't we be okay with like less overt less aggressive use of state power to get the same outcomes well and on the flip side if we're not okay with that and think it's fundamentally like you know fraudulent and borderline criminal but necessary at times it's still better to do that so i either way like you know i i think you come to the same conclusion like um yeah and i mean I think um, another thing that comes through is nudges are most effective when at some core level people want to do something. You know, there's an element where they would be willing to go along with this, but there's various reasons why they're not. Be it expedience or uh, inattention or social circumstance or perceived social circumstance. So if you think you're in a national park and this is like a true case and there's petrified wood, and there's a sign that says, you know, this petrified wood is being taken by people all the time. Uh, please don't take this wood. Your understanding is the social norm is people take this wood. So you're like, yeah, that really sucks, but, you know, maybe I should take some. Um, and in that exact case, like, you know, Robert Cialdini, he was like the psychologist, he, he talked about this case and he tried different messaging on that sign. He went to this national park with his girlfriend who's like, normally an angel and even she was like yeah maybe we should grab some before it's all gone yeah yeah i remember reading that one yeah yeah but if you and and that's what cialdini calls the big mistake is like when you accidentally emphasize you know a social norm uh without meaning to by saying hey don't do this like everyone else yeah yeah i think there was another example of like a a recycling campaign or an ad where they showed like Basically, like, oh, no one's fucking recycling, and yeah, it's terrible. And the ad would make people feel really bad when they would watch it, but it actually led to less people recycling. Yeah. Um, because like worse it, it enforced the social norm of, of people recycling. Or not recycling, right? Which is, yeah, like you said, the, the big mistake. Yeah. 
You know, what I find interesting there, like a layer there that I've been thinking about is sometimes in our ardor and in our belief that we need to change something, we might be tempted to selectively parse through data to describe a situation as in its worst possible light to galvanize action. Like, hey, you know, there's this epidemic of mailbox stealers. You know, 100% of uh, people with a little asterisks have stolen a mailbox. And by people, they mean, you know, serial kleptomaniacs who like have been to jail 17 times for stealing. <laughs> you're doing that because you think you're gonna galvanize action when really you're socializing people to believe there is a norm of this behavior. And I'm sure you can think of a dozen places where there's a lot of scary stats out there that imply a really negative social norm. And they, they might be having the exact opposite effect of their intention. Yeah. You know? You know what this reminds me of right now? The, the like, uh, all the, like, uh, anti, like, um, vaping stuff that they're sending to the teenagers these days. Oh, no. You know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like, you know, all these teens are vaping, but you don't have to be like them. Like, it's you like, know. <laughs> <laughs> Dude. It's like, uh, you know, like, a lot of these people probably wouldn't have, um, wouldn't have, have thought of that if you hadn't said that. Yeah, yeah. Dude, the, um, do you remember that movie, um, Walk Hard, the Dewey Cox story? No. <laughs> okay. <laughs> It's a, movie? <laughs> it, it, it's a it's a spoof on the Johnny Cash biopic. Oh, really? But he, like, you know, is, like, in that movie, at first he's, like, Johnny Cash, and then he's, like, the Beatles, and he's, like, the Stones, so he goes through all these phases, and in every phase, there's, like, the same guy who's in a closet. He, can't, he finds him in a closet doing some drug, and he's, like, you don't want this shit, Dewey. Like, it makes you feel like a fucking god. <laughs> there's no side effects. <laughs> You just feel like you're like walking on sunshine. You don't want it, man. <laughs> it's like we all do it, but it's we're just like corrupted and wrong. <laughs> and the next scene, he's like doing it, you know. And by the end of the movie, he's like all strung out on like seventeen drugs. <laughs> I love that movie. I gotta see that. That sounds pretty funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ultimately, I think like again, like these nudges, like. I don't know. I, I, I really don't see a good rationale for not supporting them other than like fear of the unknown, basically. Here's where I think people get uncomfortable. This team of people in this unit who are working on this stuff, they are from Cambridge. They are from University College London. They're from Harvard. They're not from some like mining town in Northern England, right? Yeah. They have a different set of values than those folks. And they think that their values are 100% the right values. And in many ways they are. In some ways they are. But part of, part of this is about moral intuitions. It's not about logic, right? It's about different people have a different sense of right and wrong. So I think people are uncomfortable being um, pushed in different directions by people who don't share their values. I think that's fair, but... Ish. It's I, fair I, ish. I guess my, my, you know, my counterpoint to that to that person would be like, you know, look at the rest of the politicians in, you know, in this case in Parliament or, yeah, exactly. in, you know, Whitehall. <laughs> like, none of them are from a small mining town in, in the northern northern England. And if they are, they probably still went to Cambridge before coming to, to, to the government, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. the government is 
largely composed of highly educated elites, right? Yeah, and I mean, Europe is much less socially mobile than here, too. Yeah. Um, generally speaking. Um, yeah, I mean, I, and, and I also think the, the beauty of this is like, you know, let's say you don't want to donate your organs and you're in a country that defaults to organ donation. You can just uncheck it. Yeah, you can just check no on the This box. isn't China. We're, they're not going to harvest your organs involuntarily. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, so even if you're that person who's like, hey, I don't want to be like, you know, pushed this way or that. It's like, this is the least pushy way for them to do this stuff. And most of what they're talking about is, is sort of like pseudo-public health related, which, depending on what the scope of that is, um, is mostly a good thing, right? Like smoking less, like drinking less, you know, encouraging people to like not drink when they're pregnant. Like those different um, different things that generally people can, can agree on are not good, you know, or getting into horrible car accidents. Um, yeah. And again, these are all d- domains in which the government is already taking legislative action, right? Like they are already introducing regulations. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess it's like the, the thing that I struggle with there is like, you know, you're okay or accepting of the fact that this, the government is going to, you know, regulate the age at which you can drink, right? Or like the labeling requirements for alcohol or what they're allowed to put in ads, right? But then to not be okay with them, like, you know, tweaking the words on a sign to like make you more likely to do something. It just, it's kind of a strange line in the sand to draw, I guess, from my perspective. Yeah, strange place to put your foot down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but anyway. No, I think that's true. I think that's true. And I think it's a good sign when something pisses off, like, people from multiple sides. And this nudge unit definitely did that, where um, folks who were on the left were like, hey, this isn't hard enough. We need to have, like, true regulation. Like, if people aren't willing to, you know, do the right thing, we need to lock them up or find them. People on the right are like, this is mind control. Yeah. So that's a good sign. That means it's probably working. <laughs> it's probably a good thing, you know? Right. Right. So here's a, here's an interesting... Um, one of the examples that they talked about, and I think this was actually in the foreword or the intro, which is one of the early examples of the government using nudges, was about trying to uh, increase the usage of... Um, like alternative crops in Europe. So in particular, you know, in the 1700s, the European populations were growing, but the diets were really restricted and they were eating a lot of wheat and they had a lot of like kind of monoculture in terms of the main sources of food for their populations and in particular the peasantry. So Frederick the Great of Prussia was like, okay, um, you know, we should try to get people to eat more potatoes. Um, He thought it would lower the price of bread and it would greatly reduce the shortages of cereals when there were, you know, droughts and famines and different things like that.
So during a famine in 1774, uh, Frederick de Gr- the Great ordered like a national cultivation program of potatoes. Um, and surprisingly, like the people were furious about this. They were like, hell no. Like, uh, here's a quote. The people of Kohlberg were like, the things have neither smell nor taste. Not even the dogs will eat them. So what use are they to us? They're furious about these potatoes. And his initial response was just like, a violent crackdown on people who refused to eat potatoes. <laughs> like, he, was, he threatened to cut the noses and ears off of any peasant who did not plant potatoes. Um, but it didn't really work. So so the legend is that basically, um, once he realized that wasn't working, he ordered his soldiers to establish, like, a heavy invisible guard around the local, like, royal potato fields. But then instru- instructed those soldiers to actually be, like, really lax in protecting them. So, make a big show of force of, like, you know, these are our royal potatoes. Like, make bring this air of, like, exclusivity around them. But then, you know, if people came in and tried to steal shit, just, like, look the other way. Um, and then the king also did, like, this conspicuous admiration of, like, potato flowers and, and potatoes. And with it, this worked, like, amazingly well. Um, they actually... Um, really widely led to the you know consumption of potatoes in Prussia, and it paid off because in the years of war that followed, like many of the Prussians' rival nations starved in famines, but the Prussians didn't because they were eating fucking potatoes, um, and um, it it helped leave Prussia the dominant power in the region. And it was a more ethical thing to do than chop people's noses off. Like that's the thing. It, it's <laughs> it works better. And it, it, it's, you know, leaves less of a stain on your character. And, like, ultimately, it's it's just a better approach. Yeah. Um, and businesses have, have known this for a long time and have employed these techniques to varying degrees. Like, you know, when, when you look at that situation, you see scarcity. They're the royal potatoes. I the, You know, the king has them. You don't have them. Yeah. Boom. So that scarcity dynamic is already present. You have authority. The, you know, king and royal family are authority figures. That lends credibility to it. Um, you have an ability to disarm counterwill resistance because people are free. Yeah. If people freely make a choice, they're much more likely to buy in and they're likely to not like, you know, get all riled up and resist because you're telling them what to do. Yeah. Um, and then you also have social proof dynamics where, you know, the king is doing this, therefore with scarcity and authority, uh, people start to like adopt this, your neighbors start doing it, and then a new social norm is established and it takes on a life of its own. Yep. You could say the same thing for a university, right? You have some uh, university with a, a low acceptance rate, now it has scarcity. Um, it's got the authority of like you know having been around for a long time or having uh, famous alumni. Um, you have the social proof aspect where tons of people are trying to get in. It's like a nightclub with a line out front. You know? Yeah. Um, same thing with a lot of products. Like Gmail, when it first came out, you couldn't get it unless a friend like referred you. Yeah, I remember that. I remember getting an invite from yeah. from Shuprathik Uncle. Shout out Shuprathik Uncle if you yeah. ever watched this for those early Gmail invites. Yeah, he was clutch. <laughs> so, he was like the was, original tech insider. <laughs> yeah, for real, back in Singapore. And he was, you know... And, and you would you'd covet those Gmail insi- invites. Even though they gave you like a hundred of them, you'd be like, oh, I don't know, man. I don't know yeah. if I could spend one of my invites on you. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. Or, or Clubhouse utilized this effect pretty yeah, effectively yeah. recently. Um, I wonder how they're doing now. Now that everyone has ripped them off, 
I don't know how they're doing. I haven't been on... Like, the problem for me is I'm just, like, too, like, terrestrial. Yeah. I just, like, go on there and I don't, like, get it. And then I go back to, like, living my real life. Yeah, no, I totally agree. That's hard, though, because we need to, like, engage... We need to be, like, freaking um, PewDiePie, you know? <laughs> I mean, yeah, if we can, if we can pull that off. The, Pew- like... the PewDiePie of rating. I mean, shit. <laughs> um... No, I mean, I, I guess what I mean by, by that is, like, uh, you know, social media is kind of a commoditized space at this point, I feel. Um, and the thing is, like, they did something unique, but now, you know, Twitter and Instagram and probably a bunch, like, you know, probably fucking Snapchat. But I know for sure, like, Twitter and, and Facebook have built copycat products off that, you know, because yeah. it's what these companies essentially do. Yeah. Um... So I wonder how you know how, how that's impacted their position, but anyway, kind of kind of a super side tangent. Yeah, yeah, no, it's an interesting question because I mean, one of the things that affects is scarcity, because in the market, you know, at large now there's like more opportunities for that type of engagement, so it makes it less valuable. You know, it's like, or it or it doesn't, because I guess the counterpoint is like I was gonna say, let's say you have a street with a bunch of nightclubs, you know, you could choose between any of those, right? Um, but the reality is like, if you go to Miami beach, um, there's tons of nightclubs, but really there's like three that you would want to go to. The (laughs) fact that there's tons just like highlights the fact that those three are the better ones. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. The social proof thing is an interesting dynamic. So I I like to go to the farmer's market. Um, and during berry season, there's a lot of different berry stands. But there's this one stand. I think it's Rodriguez Farms. Yeah. That always has a massive line. It's crazy. And I literally think it's just because people see the line. They're like, oh, these guys must have the best strawberries. Um, and then they, they just get in line. And, you know, it, it's like this self-fulfilling cycle. But it's interesting. You see it, like, you know, from nightclubs to, like, strawberries. Like, the same social, um, you know, impacts and psychology are at play. 100%. Although, to be fair, like... One day I went there and it wasn't crowded, so I went and got their berries, and they did have really good strawberries. So there yeah, might be so something to be a to there, it. there too. Yeah, but sometimes there doesn't even need to be a there, there, right? Like yeah. art auctions are a great example. Like a single gray pixel sold on Sotheby's for like forty million dollars, some shit. Well, I think that shit's just money laundering, is what the NFTs are. That's fair as well. <laughs> <laughs> even money laundering probably has a social proof dynamic where it's like if you're in a social set where it's the norm to like you know. Um, you know, gray hat your fucking finances, then you will. You, know? <laughs> you see it around you, and you're like, this is what people do. Um, but there's a place called Skillets, like this breakfast place um, near Divide Coffee. Yeah. Which is... Yeah, yeah, I remember we, we drove past it. Yeah, yeah. So here's the thing with Skillets, right? You go outside and you see a massive line every day. Here's how it works. You put your name down, and everybody just, like, waits outside. You can't wait inside the restaurant. Um, and then, like, when your table is called, you go straight to the table. You order up front outside. Mm-hmm. So you don't, like, order at the table. Interesting. So it basically creates this dynamic where, like, the, there's always a line outside because people are, like, doing half the stuff they would do at their table outside. Interesting. So it artificially amplifies their, their line. Or, like, PayPal, um, when they were not getting traction, this was more because they, like, were trying to, like, amp- get their network effects rolling. But also from a social proof standpoint, they paid users to just try out their platform. Yeah. You know? 
or like Dan Bilzerian like paying models for his like photo shoots you know? <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of different cases yeah yeah it's definitely interesting it's definitely interesting Okay, so another psychological phenomenon that they talk about a little bit that I thought was really interesting was um, how uh, basically there's an assumption that lots of us make in that attitudes shape behaviors. But the the, the psychological studies in the literature shows that most of the time it's actually the opposite. Behaviors shape attitudes, right? Yeah. Um, and that's what, you know, they call cognitive dissonance is like when there's a discrepancy between attitudes and behavior, like when you do something boring for little reward, your attitude will often move into line with your behavior. So after a while, you'll basically just convince yourself, okay, the task isn't so bad. It allows me to relax. It allows me to clear my mind, um, et cetera. And he was talking about this in particular in the context of like, war bonds and, and the World War Two kind of uh, propaganda. So someone who's invested in a war bond or, you know, dug for victory or, or done various things like that are probably more likely to start to believe in the value and objectives of the war itself. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I thought that was an interesting one as well. Yeah, I mean, it goes with this, like, Benjamin Franklin quote, which is like, if you want to win someone over, have them do you a favor, mm. you know? Um, and it also goes back I mean a lot of this stuff goes back to um, the Frederick Douglass episode we talked about in the context of like what turns you know normal people into like slavers or like uh, Chinese POW camps in North Korea like and the reason for that is you know our podcasts have a psychological element right they're partially about people and human nature and like so there's gonna be this through line and we're gonna see it in a lot of different angles Um, yeah so it's interesting to see just how many places you see these phenomena. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. Um, so in terms of the the behavioral unit, um, he was talking about these kind of three strands of psychological research that they then applied to their policy. So the three things he basically talked about was first, the study of perception and how humans literally see and interpret the world. So things like, you know, we see edges and small differences, but we blank out things that don't change. And by that, I mean, like, literally our eyes and our brain that interprets the signals from our retina. Or we become accustomed to constant back background noises. Um, then the other thing, the second strand, is social psychology. So how our behavior is influenced by the people and things around us. Um, and, and that's kind of what we've been talking about before this quite a bit. Um, and then what was the third thing? Cognitive psychology. So our internal thought processes and um, how we actually make decisions on an everyday basis. Like what are the mental shortcuts and the heuristics that we use that uh, drive them? So um, one of the examples that I thought was really interesting about the cognitive psychology one was the um, this notion of an avail- availability bias right or an availability heuristic where basically the more easily you can call something to mind an example of something the more likely or common you infer it to be um so the example he's talking about here is um you know 
the safety of air travel versus car travel, right? Like, if you look at the numbers, it's much safer to fly than it is to drive. Yeah. Significantly so. But generally, people think, excuse me, it's much safer to drive than fly because, you know, car crashes happen all the time. The news doesn't really play them up. But, like, when a plane crashes, it's a huge event, right? Like, it's in the news. You see all this horrible wreckage and all these things. Right. And then... A really interesting thing I thought he talked about was, um, you know, the consequences that these estimates can, these these erroneous estimates can have. So, after 9-11, this availability bias um, against flying and pro-driving was obviously exacerbated in the U.S. significantly, right? Because, you know, that's, what's a more visible symbol of, like, the dangers of flying than 9-11? Um, so dramatically more people decided to drive instead of flying to take trips in the following year. And there was a substantial increase in road deaths because of that. Um, and the thing that blew my mind is he said that this increase in road deaths is estimated to have been a greater impact than the original death toll from 9-11 itself. Yeah. Yeah. That's a crazy stat to me. Yeah, Which shows 100%. the power of these, you know, small, like, psychological phenomena. 100%. You see that just repeated again and again. So, like, if there's a, a well-publicized suicide, in the locale that, that suicide occurred, people who um, fit the same demographic as the person who killed themselves will tend to start killing themselves at higher rates. So, in Cialdini's book, he talks about that. Or, like, you know, copycat killings. And so, sometimes when we talk about, like, you know, mass shootings in the U.S., we're talking about a very specific ritualized event that typically carries kind of a, a momentum from event to event, right? Mm-hmm. It's like weirdo shoots up innocent people at X location. And to a certain degree, that's a question of this like media resonance and availability bias. Uh, it's a question of social norms. What do people like me do? When I go on some weird internet forum, when I read the news, I see, okay, I'm someone who's let's say troubled, I look at that and I'm like, okay, this is what weird people like me do, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that that's interesting. And like, I think, um, I mean, we, I'm sure tons of people like ourselves included have these like casual conversations about like when something bad happens, um, what are the consequences of glorifying the perpetrators either advertently or inadvertently? And the answer is like, it's really negative. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's super interesting. Super interesting. Because, like, you know, like, the U.S. has always been uh, somewhat of a violent environment. But some of these specific types of crimes are relatively new and happen in waves. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Yeah. Um, Which is weird, because, like, there's no reason for that except this psychological resonance, right? At least partially. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean... Yeah, it's it's very strange and mysterious to be honest. Yeah. Um, I think definitely the psychological bias is there and, and the media, um, you know, doesn't do a very good job of like not glorifying the perpetrators, right? And instead making sure that the victims' names are displayed and not the perpetrators and stuff like that, you know. I think that they could definitely do a better job there. Yeah, like the social norms aspect. Yeah. You know like emphasizing that this is something that happens frequently you know here's how frequently it happens here's who does it and then everyone who fits that demographic is like huh (laughs) (laughs) 
Yeah. Yeah. Uh, one thing that was interesting along those lines is like, um, like women on company boards. Mm-hmm. So in the UK, they had a bunch of PSAs that were like, you know, uh, only 12% of board members are women. But ironically, when they shifted that to say 90% of companies have a woman on the board, the number of women on boards increased. Because then you're looking at your board being like, oh, are we actually doing a good job here? Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, that's an interesting point. And I think, like, I mean, like, ultimately, it is good to have more women on boards because, like, there, it, it's pretty well studied that, like, uh, diversity leads to more innovation. And that's diversity across all spectrums, right? So political diversity gender diversity, you know, ethnic diversity, racial diversity, educational diversity, background diversity, like just having people with different opinions in a room essentially leads to more innovation, right? Um, and, and this is pretty well studied. I don't have any of the studies on, you know, on hand right now, but um, it's pretty well known. So I can see, you know, obviously that's better, right? But um, the interesting thing is like the different approaches to that, right? California has passed a regulation that says, you know, companies of a certain size have to have, you know, uh, a woman on the board. And I'm curious, you know, I, I would be really interested in a study that compares that approach to the approach you're discussing in the UK and see who actually is getting the better outcomes and yeah. who's getting the better. If they get the same outcomes, what are the, what's the cost of, of the two approaches? It would be really interesting to find out. Well, it's probably much, I mean, the, the beauty of nudges is, you know, there's a there's a measurement like burden yeah because you know? the whole thing with nudges this behavioral insights unit is what they do they have to be accountable for the results like their whole mandate was they have to return 10x the value in two years otherwise they're shutting down now if that's how the government was run i would feel a lot better about a lot of things you know where it's like hey if we don't you know return 10x value we're shutting it all down no firefighters, no cops, <laughs> just nothing. Straight up, you're on your own. You know, I'm, that's what I'm. My genuine belief is. <laughs> but uh, what does I even say? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. So like, for if, if they're trying to like do the way they're doing in California, like there's two aspects. One aspect is, I think that it um, has more of an anti-meritocratic element. Where it's not like, hey, reflect upon your board, reflect upon the choices you're making, and you know, think about are there, are there ways you can, um, are, are are you, you know, or do you have that diversity perspective? In California, it's more like we are just like forcing you to select a candidate based on this like immutable characteristic. Um, so I think there's that ethical element, which a lot of the nudge versus regulation thing, there is that ethical element of like coercion versus choice. Yeah. Um, and then also you have to like police. So policing is expensive. Right. Yeah. Right. So it's definitely cheaper to nudge. Yeah. 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 Right. And I think, so I think that's the ultimate question, right? And, and I think, you know, we'll find out as we do more research into the literature, but like, I think for that, those reasons, ultimately, if the nudge can be as effective or if it can be more effective than the regulation, then that's definitely the direction that we should try to move in because, we're getting the outcomes we want for less cost. I mean, yeah. why everyone should be thrilled with that, right? Like, yeah, yeah. you're getting what you want and we're paying less. I mean, you know, what could be better than that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess the people who'd be unhappy about that are people who are 
getting the money that we would be paying. Yeah, that's you know? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, yeah. Okay, so so I want to go back to what you said about the the yeah. goals of this government unit because I actually think this is something that's kind of incredible. Like yeah, yeah, when they were setting this thing up, this behavioral insights uh, team yeah. is that what it was called? The BIT. Yeah, behavioral insights team. Um, th- they set out with these clear objectives. So the three objectives were one, transform at least two major areas of policy, two, spread understanding of behavioral approaches across Whitehall, and three, achieve at least a tenfold return on the cost of the unit. If we failed to achieve these objectives, it was explicitly stated that BIT would be shut on its second anniversary. That level of accountability in government is like shocking, incredible, shocking. Yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, that is, yeah, I, I think that's, that's remarkable. impressive. Yeah. 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 Um, because what you're saying is essentially like, you know, we have to deliver. Yeah. And if not, it's over. Right. Um, which is what we do in the private sector all the time. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think that pressure is ultimately what leads to innovation, what leads to good results. Mm-hmm. Right. Is, is this pressure of like, you know, we have to do this in order to continue being able to do this. Like we must right. succeed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think that's really powerful and I would love to see that sort of um, approach in more um, governmental units. I mean, I think it's really uh, like a model for how we should structure these things. And I love also that they were doing this kind of like experimental and new idea, right? They were yeah. like, hey, like we have all this research, you know, the government policies haven't been updated at all to take into account the last 20, 30 years of, you know, massive strides we've made in, in like these different pillars of psychology and in behavioral economic economics. Yeah. So, you know, let's, let's try to take advantage of that and then making it metrics driven, accountable. Um, yeah. I guess like startup. Yeah. Right. Um, I definitely think this is like a, like a model for, you know, policy reform, just in general. Uh, I think it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, who kind of like popularized the term nudge, um, Richard Thaler won like Nobel Prize um, for his work in behavioral economics. They call this model of governing uh, libertarian paternalism because mm-hmm. they're like, hey, we're going to encourage you to do what's good for you. We're going to nudge you to do what's good for you, but we're not going to mandate, coerce, force. Uh, demand that you do what's good for you. Right. Um, so I think, for example, with uh, Bloomberg in New York and his like big gulp ban, I mean, I try to be a healthy person. I don't think it's good to be unhealthy. I don't drink big gulps, but in my opinion, that's a great case where you could use a behavioral nudge to dramatically reduce the amount of big gulps being drank, drunk. Yeah. Without um, robbing people of their opportunity for no, like, Anytime you're going to use coercive force to make people do something, it has to be justified. Yeah. There's an intrinsic element of wrong in it that demands justification. It's not just like, oh, it's unhealthy for you, therefore we banned it. You know, it's like, you. what gave you the right to do that? And like, did did you truly have a a strong moral justification? Whereas with the nudge, it's like, I feel like it takes a lot less justification. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's definitely true, right? Because, uh, because like you, you're saying, you you preserve choice, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm, 
I definitely am, am eager to dig in more, um, finish out this book, maybe check out a couple more books. And, um, you know, I almost want to see, like, are there any major criticisms of these approaches? Like, what are the counterpoints? Because so far, it seems like this is almost like a panacea. Like, this thing is, like, this is exactly what we should try to do for almost all of the policies that we're trying to do. Because it's more effective, it preserves choice, it's less expensive. So, you know, what are the downsides here? Um, I think that's what I want to... I'm also curious about that, because so far, based on the literature I've seen, it seems great. <laughs> I don't know why we're doing anything else. Yeah, well, if I, if I throw, like, a, like a reductio ad absurdum at it, like, okay, let's say you have a, a nudge against murder, right? Like, we send you a message that's like, 99% of people do not murder. You know? <laughs> let's say you're like Ted Bundy. Yeah. You're still gonna murder, right? I mean, to be fair, he still does even with our current approach, but we catch him because it's illegal. Well yeah, okay. So, so without sure. that, I mean you're not gonna catch him. Yeah, I mean obviously for cases like murder, we like again, that is like one of the fundamental things with that led to the rise of governments in general was literally like, you know, people just murdering each other. It's like, yeah. hey, like, let's all band together and agree that if one of us murders the other ones, we'll punish the guy who murdered them. Yeah, right? I agree. Like, it's kind of fun. The fundamental thing. I mean, not in California, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, in California as well. Yeah, yeah, agree. Um, yeah, so, I mean, like, th- that's what I'm saying. Like, is there, like, a real criticism <laughs> that's actually, like, legit? Well, I mean, I, I guess that would be the criticism. Like... The uh, the left wing criticism is it's it's not hard enough of a boundary. I, I think what it really comes down to is where you draw the line about stuff that's like, um, stuff that is so egregiously negative that it warrants coercive intervention. So murder, yes, I, I would agree with that. All violent crimes, yes, I would agree with that. Um, but then it's like you start to, you know, you start to figure out where that line is. So for example, um. In Europe, they regulate the size of bananas. What? Literally. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, does it make sense? When you say regulate, what does that mean? That means um, fines. That means, like, you know, like punishment, right? Ultimately, like coercive punishment. So, the question is is something that small, like, does that warrant coercive intervention into your life? So, I think the nice thing with nudges is you can apply them in both cases. Like we can, in a bad neighborhood, we can we can use crime statistics to say, you know, yes, you may have availability bias where you're like, hey, I know a lot of people who've been killed or hurt. But we can tell you, actually the majority of people in your neighborhood don't hurt people or kill people. Uh, but we can also use like coercive tools like imprisonment to be like, if you do hurt someone, you go to jail, you know? Um, and for the small stuff, for the big gulp, like we can be like, hey, you know, um, the average customer gets a small drink at 7-Eleven. Not a big goal. Maybe you're way more likely to get that small drink, but we don't needlessly curtail your rights just for our you know, values and whims, basically. Yeah. yeah. Okay, for what it's worth, I, I, I did fact check this banana size thing because it sounded like just an absurd time. It's actually true. I mean... <laughs> <laughs> I was worried when I saw you fact-checking. I was like, oh, no. <laughs> Let me read you this. The minimum size with tolerances and exceptions is a length of 14 centimeters and a thickness of 2.7 centimeters. 
It specifies the minimum standards for specific quality classifications of bananas, extra class one, class two. Only extra bananas have to comply fully with the shape specifications. Class two bananas, for instance, are permitted to have defects of shape. Class one, only slight defects of shape, but that's not true of the size specifications. Sale of bananas below the minimum size is almost always prohibited. Okay, just wrap your head around that. Prohibited. Prohibited. What does that mean? You do it and you get fined. What happens if you don't pay the fine? <laughs> you fucking go to court. <laughs> what happens if you, you know, are in contempt of court? You go to jail. <laughs> okay. <laughs> this That's is fucking crazy, man. But you could, you, you could have a nudge to like correct for this. You can be like, hey, your competitors are producing bananas of this quality standard. People have this expectation. The majority of customers expect this, you know? Um, yeah. Or you can you can have it so like we'll ship you a crate that only like stacks or fits like certain sizes or shapes of bananas for free. Okay. My thing is like Who gives why, a shit? Yeah, why is there a nudge <laughs> or a fucking regulation about the size of bananas? I mean, shit like this is why we only have like one species of banana and all the like heritage varietals of bananas that have been growing over the world are getting replaced by the same um same genetics of like freaking dull bananas and when there's a uh disease it's just going to completely wipe out bananas across the globe like if you go to south america right um i was in like ecuador right or even if you go to india right but there's so many different kinds of bananas like it's not just like this is a banana it's shaped exactly like this it's like got this bent to it like why this makes me irate honestly like <laughs> yeah, I mean, and, and not to get like super political about it, but when, when it was like the time of like Brexit, um, this, like this is part of why at least is like, like why who like who made this rule? Why should you like? How does it make any sense? And why should you like contend with it? And there's a lot of rules like this. You know what I mean? It's not the only one. Um, uh, I mean, that's not to say it's necessarily a good idea or a bad idea. I'm not informed enough about it. But it is kind of just, like, annoying to have, like, arbitrary rules put on you. Like, the big gulp, okay, I understand where Mike Bloomberg is coming from because I agree. But I also think it's just still wrong. Yeah. You know, it it would be like, I don't know, like, it would be like, um, what would it be like? It would be like me seeing someone eating an ice cream cone and smacking it out of their hand. And I'm like, hey, listen, that's going to kill you in the long term. <laughs> clearly insane, right? Like, yeah, sure, that might be true, but clearly fucking insane. But if the government does it, you're like, yeah, you know, you know. <laughs> so an interesting counterpoint to that is I remember when we were kids, it used to be pretty, like, aggressive about people smoking. So I remember our mom always tells a story of, like, we were at some, like, bus stop in Australia, and there's a guy who's smoking a cigarette, and you're like, Excuse me, sir. Your second hand smoke is killing me, or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> Told him to stop that shit. Like, put it out. <laughs> yeah. How times change. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. That's fair. Now I'm the one where people are telling me to put out my freaking cigar. <laughs> Not anymore, but I, I have had that exact conversation in reverse. <laughs> Well, at least at least you've been on both sides of the fence, you know. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. No, it's 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 very interesting though. I mean, 
regardless of whether we feel that the government has any business nudging or regulating bananas sizes, we can agree that in general, um, nudges are a good idea. Um, and I think you're right that like probably the criticism is like you know where do we draw the line of like what should be a nudge and what should be uh, a regulation or or an enforced policy. Um, and it's an interesting question, you know, there's a massive gray area there, right? Yeah. Like, I think, like you said, pretty much anyone could agree on violent crime, and then you go beyond that, and it's like, well, okay, now what, you know? And when you talk about, like, desire to ban things, which is, I mean, effectively, like, not all laws, but, like, many laws are predicated around setting some sort of guardrail, saying some things are okay and some things are not okay. It's very culturally determined, too. Mm-hmm. So, like, 33% of Americans support banning things like if you average like a variety of things like smoking and bullying and you aggregate them you see that about 33 percent of americans are pro banning stuff um in england it's like in excess of 50 percent yeah in canada it's even higher in uh, india it's 87 percent of people support banning things higher than even china which is weird right that is weird yeah because it seems like nothing is banned in india (laughs) (laughs) but that's fine (laughs) but in china it's like 83 percent too in Saudi, it's, like, super high, too. So it's, like, you know, that raises a further question, which, you know, I feel like you would probably be along these lines, but you tell me it's, like, different places have a different social contract to some extent, and you just kind of have to respect the culture and norms of those folks within reason as long as they're not, like, you know, stoning women and, like, throwing gay people off of roofs or whatever it may be. Yeah, yeah. I mean, like, there, there's, like, atrocities, right? And, like, uh, stripping people's humanity away. And we can kind of put that aside and say, like, yeah, we all agree that that's not a good idea and we shouldn't, like, you support know, that. support that. Um, or shrug and just be like, hey, it's just how they do things. Like, <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I can't accept that, yeah. yeah. But um, in terms of beyond that, yeah, I totally think that there is... Um, you know, a range of social contracts and um, not everyone works for every person. I think the thing that, I, I think where that reasoning, where I struggle with that reasoning is basically like, you know, we are among the privileged few in the world who actually have a choice to make, right? Like if we wanted to, we could probably emigrate to a different country, right? Um, like if, if I wanted a social contract that had less liberties, but more safety and more efficient government services, I could immigrate to Singapore. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, but that's because, you know, I'm a software engineer and whatever background that I have, I'm educated. I, I have a good job and I could find a pathway to do that. I think the vast majority of the world doesn't have access to the resources that would actually allow them this mobility. Right. Yeah. Um, so that, I guess that's where I think that kind of falls short, but, yeah, yeah. um, in general, yeah, I, I agree. And I think it's, it's totally true. And actually I think our conversation we had with one of our old friends from Singapore when we saw him in, uh, India, yeah. um, really kind of cemented this idea, you know, that like, you know what, like I firmly believe that the social contract that we have in America is the one that most closely aligns with what I actually believe in. Um, but I guess, you know, if you disagree and you're in a different country and and that's, that's what you guys do, then that's fair. I mean, you're allowed to, I don't have to 
um, you know, necessarily like force what I believe on you. Yeah, Singapore is a good example because they don't, you know, <clears throat> they don't do things that are egregiously like atrocious and their society does run very well. So you can tell it truly is an alternative social contract and you don't have to kind of apply this like moral relativist lens of like, hey, you know, like, uh, like, um, everyone loves Xi Jinping, you know, the Uyghurs, you know, well, I don't know. <laughs> you don't have to start doing that, right? Like, yeah. Um, Singapore isn't perfect, but it's, I mean, nowhere's perfect, right? But it's a good example of like an al- truly alternative social contract that isn't completely morally compromised and like, you know, needs to be just like not emulated at all, ever by anyone. Not here, please, but. Yeah. And I mean, even like, you know, like I, I think in Europe, um, in Canada yeah. as well, social contract is pretty different. It's an understandable social contract, not one that I would want, but understandable. Right. Yeah. And some elements of it I think are positive, but yeah, like they, they don't have free speech in Canada or the UK. No. Yeah. They literally don't. Like, that's not even uh, like a tenant of their government they just don't believe in that yeah which is insane yeah well to us yeah I don't know they're probably fine with it yeah like they eat jelly eels over there man I don't know what the hell they're doing yeah that's true, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> I was watching a YouTube video about okay if any of our listeners are British please explain jelly eels to me yeah, actually like, I am curious <laughs> why <laughs> what like what does it taste like is it like savory or sweet I think it's savory based on the video that I watched but it, it's cold, I think. Again, yeah, just just get in touch. <laughs> I want to know, like, what the deal is with this. I love how, some, like, some of those folks would go to, like, a Chinese restaurant and be like, what? What's this? <laughs> it's like, buddy, like, what's that? <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> yeah. Jesus. Yeah, yeah. That's... You know, that's something interesting that... Like, just, I don't really see how it would fit into, like, what we're doing at all, but it could be interesting to talk about is, like, changes in culinary traditions during revolutions. Because, like, Chinese culinary tradition has stayed surprisingly rich and intact through their various revolutions, you know? Whereas, like, in Russia, that's not the case. Like, a lot of traditional, like, Russian uh, cuisine was destroyed by the revolution. That is an interesting point. Although, what I will say is that uh, as a counterpoint on the Chinese thing is that there's a restaurant out here in the Bay Area, um, uh, a mostly Sichuan restaurant. It's called Royal Feast. It's in Millbrae. Um, excellent restaurant. Highly recommend if you're over here that you go check it out. But that chef was a chef in the Forbidden City for like the uh, royal government. And he basically had to like flee China. Oh, um, during the Cultural Revolution. We should go there, like, really soon. Have you not been there? No, we, we went there. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. what I thought, yeah. Hey, we, we should go there, there twice. I haven't yeah, been there yeah. in a while. Um, it's been a while, yeah. It's been, like, several months. I could yeah, use yeah. some dandan noodles, but... Um, anyway, like... That's it, insane. Yeah, it's crazy, right? It's yeah. a crazy story. Um, no, that's a good example. But yeah. you, you are right that China still maintains its, like, culinary richness, right? Like, yeah. the, um, the Chinese culinary tradition is, is thriving. It's well and alive for sure yeah yeah and that revolutionary impulse you know like people do strange things so like in the french revolution they tried to reset the calendar to like year zero starts at the french revolution or like create a new number system like crazy shit like that you know yeah um what's interesting about china though is they um co-opt 
symbols of culture and history in interesting ways. So like the Sichuan Temple, uh, or not Sichuan Temple, the Shaolin Temple. <laughs> now I'm just thinking about food. Um, I, I'm pretty sure, like, if I if I remember and like, you can fact check me on this, but I believe it was destroyed and then recreated as like a tool of Chinese propaganda. Interesting. So they are, instead of getting rid of the culture, they reshape the culture and use symbols of authority, um, and and um, you know social cloud social relevance. Um, to reinforce their power. Very interesting. Very interesting. Okay. So, I guess that's probably a pretty good uh, uh, spot to leave it for this week. Any closing thoughts on behavioral nudges? Uh, And I will add before we go there that this is a subject we'll probably be exploring for the next couple of weeks. So mm-hmm. we're going to dig into the rest of this book. We might throw in some papers, maybe some other books. We'll see. But we're going to have, we're going to continue exploring this and, and delving into these uh, tools um, and, and how they've been used um, in the past. And, and hopefully, you know, find some things that we can then use in the app to, you know, help nudge you to read more and nudge ourselves to read more. Because that's ultimately what we're trying to do here. Yeah, and I mean, yeah, this is currently one of the foundations of our app, for sure, is like using these techniques to help you to read more. Um, we'll definitely come back to this. I think this area of behavioral economics, as well as the psychology of learning, um, as well as behaviorism, the psychology of reinforcement and reward, are three of the areas that we'll probably dig into really deeply to come up with sophisticated strategies to help you to read more. I wanted to mention this week that I watched the Fire Festival documentary. Give me one sec. Ja Rule talking about it. Yeah, Ja Rule. <laughs> ja Rule is out here right now. He's trying to shut this down. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah. Um, basically, um, I saw the Fire Festival documentary, and I want to say we're not going to be able to actually turn you into Charles Dickens. <laughs> <laughs> like, just just to be like straight up with you, like you know, we're 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 going to give you great content that's going to help you read more. We're going to create a, a system that encourages and facilitates reading using these psychological techniques. It's in development. Um, we have a lot of hypotheses and experiments we're trying to run right now. Um, there's great evidence that they work from books like this, uh, where you see people increasing rates of positive behavior by like many, many times over uh, using very simple, um, interventions, but yeah, you won't be writing or reading war and peace instantly, like in a single day. Um, and we won't help you achieve the fame of Charles Dickens like we said last week that is a good point I'm sorry (laughs) to say that (laughs) well we might help you but we're not going to guarantee that you're going to have to really do the work on that like you know yeah and with the stuff in general like you know what I mean like we can give you the best setup in the world like but you have to like ultimately do the work yeah Um, we can make it easier and we will but that's what that is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's a good point. Um, I think that's about it. With that, Reading Rebellion number four in the books. We're already a month in. That's crazy. 
It was pretty insane, right? Yeah. 